to Embracing the Journey, a program focused on the freedom that comes from being able to talk about death. I'm Lori Burkhart Frank. Our topic is spiritual care at the end of life, in honor of October being Clergy Month. My guest tonight is the Reverend Brad Helmuth, Rector, Pastor of Holy Trinity Episcopal Church in Nevada City. Reverend Helmuth has supported the community spiritually through youth ministry, spiritual care counselor for hospice, and a variety of roles at at Holy Trinity until becoming the rector in 2018. Thank you for joining us, Brad. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so Brad, what drew you to become an ordained priest of the Episcopal Diocese? Well, I'd been doing youth ministry for a long time, and uh, that that part of my tenure in pastoring had ended. And uh, and I ended up with my family at Holy Trinity and uh, was, was quickly welcomed in and felt a call to pursue that, you know, ordination within the Episcopal Church. So were you always aware that this was the path you were on, or did you think you'd be doing something else with your life? Um, as far as being a priest in the Episcopal Church, I would have never thought that I would have been doing that. I always thought I was going to do youth ministry for my whole life. I love working with kids, high school kids in particular. So no, I I would have never, I joke often about it saying I, I never would have guessed I've been wearing a dress on a Sunday morning. So. <laughs> love that. <laughs> <laughs> so what is, what do you see your role, your the role that you play at at Trinity Church? Well, the basic role of a, of a priest uh, is to shepherd, to care for people. And so I am, it's a family-sized church, right? Small little parish. And so I'm, I, I'm in charge. I'm the CEO. So that means I need to make sure that um, bills get paid and people are where they're supposed to be volunteering and then pay attention to the other needs uh, of the people in the church and then the community too, because, uh, because I've lived here for a while. Um, I get calls, so I I provide care wherever it is that uh, there's a need. So you said that you've lived here for a while. When did you come to Nevada County? Oh, gosh. My folks moved up with uh, many people in the late 70s from L.A., from the, uh, Orange County, actually, in 78, so a few years ago. Yeah, so I, I know that my neighbors don't even consider me... Um, <laughs> A long time person because it's only been twenty seven years, <laughs> but you have a few more years, I think, than That's right. here than I did. Uh, in reading about the Holy Trinity Church, I was really fascinated to see that the first service was held uh, April twenty first, eighteen fifty four. So, is it one of the oldest churches in the area? It is it, actually all the churches in the area were founded about the same time. You have to think about the gold rush and what was happening. Um, all the church, all the Episcopal churches along the Gold Trail were all founded uh, by Bishop Kip in eighteen fifty four, and the other what mainline denominations, the Methodist Church, uh, Roman Catholics, uh, all of them were were founded about the same time. So yeah, it's that's about as early as anything was founded. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Probably about the same time as the bars came into town. Pro- about, probably <laughs> about the same time. Well, one of the things that 
uh, we talk about on this program about being able to talk about death. It is about chaplains, and I know that before you became a priest, you were a chaplain with hospice. Um, and is that the same thing, being a, a chaplain and a priest? Um, it, there's quite a bit of overlap, but it is not. A priest is a little bit more open-ended because you might be baptizing a newborn or performing a wedding or things like that. Ho- hospice chaplain, uh, specifically, that work is about... Um, it's about death and dying and life in its last season. So it, it, it looks a little bit different. And is the training similar? Uh, for that, yeah, there's a, there's, there are some things that are quite a bit different. I mean, a lot of my training was with, you know, the, the person that was training me when I came uh, to hospice. I hadn't, hadn't done any hospice chaplain work prior to that. So it's a lot of it is just doing it and observing a lot of the giftedness that goes into being chaplain is being able to pay attention and listen. And so as long as you're paying attention and listening, you pick up very quickly on kind of how things work and, you know, what what works best. Well, when you were a hospice chaplain, were the conversations that you engaged in with the hospice patients always about dying? No, actually, I tried to, my, my time as a hospice chaplain wasn't talking talking to people about dying. It was talking to people about life and their life Um, because the elephant in the room is that they know they're dying and I know that they're dying and they don't really want to talk about dying. And that's not really helpful. You know, the the goal of a chaplain or a clergy person is to provide some comfort. And so whether it's doing some life review or asking some good questions and then listening to see what's important to them, you know, that's most of the time that's what I did. And I think that's so interesting because I, I, think that sometimes when families are faced with someone they love who are dying, that they're afraid that that's their only pathway to communicate is to talk about dying. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, having sat with, oh gosh, at one time I counted, it was like 13 or 1400 different families over my tenure, which is a lot of people. That is a lot of people. When you, when you sit with people and you watch people, there, there's a certain, hesitancy to say or do or even touch someone, right? There, there's this fear of not wanting to offend, and it really keeps people from engaging fully. So that was part of my role, too, is to, is to make everyone comfortable with what was going on so that they can engage and do the work that needs to be done in that season of life. And so when you talk about the work that needs to be done, what kind of work may, might that be for um, if it doesn't have to be a hospice patient, but anybody who's facing that yeah. end of life. Well, you know, it, it's it's pretty varied. Mostly, it's about helping someone understand that their life had some impact, that there's some legacy there. And so depending on what's going on in a person's life, that may be a little bit harder to find, but there's always something there. So I always worked on the legacy part with them and helped them see how they both loved and how they and how they were loved in their life. Well, I'm sure that makes people feel so much better. Well, sure. You know, you you're most people you know, they people can have a fear of dying, but there the fears that I ran into the most was did I did I have some impact upon whether it's my children or uh, my extended family or my friends, do I, does it really matter? Like, did, did I do okay? And so talking about those things or having conversations about those things are 
you know, we're always real helpful. The other thing I'm hearing right now from you as, as we talk is it doesn't sound like it's all has to be about a religion, whatever perspective somebody yeah. looks at, whether they are religious or not. Yeah. Well, a couple of things I would say to that. One is, as a hospice chaplain, if I was getting into someone's house, mostly they did not have a faith community that they were part of. Now, that that wasn't always true but mostly sat with people that that hadn't attached themselves. But the second thing that I'll say about that is there are a lot of people that aren't religious, but everyone has a spirituality. They they have things that they believe about life, about what's important, about what's good, about what's right, about what's wrong, and then about what happens next, you know, what are the next things. And so Everyone I sat with had some sort of spirituality, from the most staunch atheist person that I that I sat with uh, to the most devoutly religious person. You know, everyone's got some structure to give uh, to understand meaning uh, in life. Well, I find that interesting when you talk about an, uh, a most staunch atheist person because it is an invitation to have somebody like yourself come in. Um, so it make it's I'm curious why. They were open to that. <laughs> well, one of the beautiful things about the hospice uh, care in town here through Hospice of the Foothills was there's a team that goes in. So there's a nurse, and it's, it's a medical model, but there's social work and then other auxiliary. So uh, spiritual care is one, uh, volunteers, uh, and the social worker that went into uh, liked me, thought I was a good person to have as a part of the team, and went in and sold me. As someone that could just, you know, not going to push anything on you or, you know, kind of dispelling the myths of a chaplain sitting with them. And so I got to I got to come in and sit, you know, with several families. I'm thinking of one in particular, uh, but that, it was a sell for sure. But that, of course, it, from what it sounds like, it, it did make a difference to, uh, the, again, those folks that might be staunch atheists to have somebody as a sounding board. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, because... Um, everyone has a, a sense of themselves and a spirituality that gives them definition, right? So even though they might declare something about themselves, um, you you can't go through this life and not rub shoulders with the religious or somebody that's more spiritual. So uh, as as people are in that season of life and they're reflecting on life, a lot of those themes that are religious themes come through. Um, this particular person I'm thinking of was having some very vivid dreams. And so he wanted me to tell them what they meant. So I, so I sat with him and listened to these. And he was an artist. So he had these dreams that were absolutely incredible. And they were meaningful to him. They re- there really was some depth and meaning to them that then we could address the things that, um, that either was worried about or um, needed some answers to. Uh, that sounds so interesting. And I want to let our listeners know that you're listening to Embracing the Journey on KVMR. I'm Lori Burkhart-Frank, and my guest tonight is Reverend Brad Helmuth, Rector, Pastor of the Holy Trinity Episcopal Church in Nevada City, and we're talking about spiritual care at the end of life. Brad, how do you think that spirit, providing spiritual care for those facing the end of life is different from spiritual care and the support you offer to your congregation in general? Um, I think the common denominator is shepherding requires that you listen and you pay attention. So whether you're sitting with someone that's dealing with a dying or a terminal diagnosis, or whether you're just dealing with someone 
that is going through a season in their life, uh, you know, the listening part of it, the paying attention, uh, you know, that, that, that's really the core of it. And so from there, it just, you know, my work with the people in my parish is religious in nature, specifically uh, my faith tradition, Christianity. So, uh, so I bring in the scriptures and teachings and, and the rituals that we have as a part of the Episcopal Church, whereas uh, that, that wouldn't necessarily be just something that I would do with, um, with a hospice patient. Although I did that as well, if someone had a background, uh, then, then we could access that as a, as a source of strength for them. So do you think, why do you think that so many of us are uncomfortable or afraid of discussing death? Well, because no one's ever died and come back. We're, we're afraid of the unknown, right? We, we don't know what it is. We want to know that we're going to be okay. We want to know that uh, the people that, that we love are going to be okay. Those types of issues. And the unknown really causes a lot of anxiety. Uh, it's one of the, it's one of the main manifestations of someone that's going through, you know, that season of their life is there's anxiety and it's about the what ifs and, and what next and those types of things. Yeah, I can certainly understand that. Um, you've talked with people who are facing the mortality and with their families. And I know that these can sometimes be challenging conversations for loved ones. What do you suggest for the friends and family who are having a tough time having deep conversations with their loved ones who are facing the end of life? Well, I think, uh, like I had mentioned earlier, you, if you're afraid of the process and what's going on, then that's going to impact your conversation with your loved one. You, you've got to be able to roll up your sleeves and jump in the middle and engage conversation. Um, you, you know, the, that's, that's the first thing, right? Uh, <laughs> the, People can tell how you're feeling. You know, is it, if, as a chaplain, if I walked into a room with somebody I hadn't met and I hadn't prepared myself and I wasn't in a space to receive what was going on, immediately that it's picked up in the room and, and that becomes um, counter to, you know, what we would like to happen. So for a family member, it's being it's being available and being present for those moments, right? Because we don't, people that are, that are dying, that are in the process of dying, that are ill, they don't want to talk about it all the time. But when they're ready to talk about it, you have to be ready. You have to be available. You have to, you have to listen for the cues and those things and then be invitational to them to keep, keep talking, you know, they, to tell their stories to communicate the things that have been important to them, you know, those types of things. That's really well said. And I wonder, do you work with family members and, and those de dear friends that are having such a hard time being present because of their own grief ahead of time? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, anytime I'm around somebody that's dealing with that, if somebody's ill or dying or it's just always an encouragement to get in there. It's okay. You can touch that person. You, that's your dad or that's your grandpa or uncle or whatever it might be. Um, get in there and and be a part of the process, you know. Um, and do you find that you have conversations with those family members just to support their pain and, and their fear of the unknown as well? Yeah. You know, that's... 
it's as much present in in a family member or a good friend as it is in the person. And so being able to be an ear for someone else is equally as, you know, helpful because if you can, if you can calm their fears and anxieties, that then that allows them to be more settled. So when they're in the presence of their loved one, it kind of settles the room down and allows them to be present. Have you found that oftentimes um, whoever is facing the terminal diagnosis wants to meet with you individually or with a family or maybe mix it up sometimes? The, the, most of the time, a, the person just wants to meet with me. You know, there, there are things that people can't say, won't say, don't want to talk about with anybody other than a clergy person. Uh, you know, the, the act of confession is a very powerful ritual. And so most of the time, they want to be able to express disappointments and failures and those things without without the judgment of somebody that has a history with them. They want somebody to listen to them and it becomes very confessional and there's a release to that to say, you know, in them in themselves to say, okay, well now I, I've told somebody about this. And then we can, you know, then we have conversations not necessarily about it, but about the feelings associated with it. So most of the time, most of the time it's one on one. Do you feel like you've ever worked with people that were really um, holding on longer than anybody expected because they just hadn't unburdened themselves yet? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can tell you a specific example. It's actually one of the most, I would say one of the most beautiful experiences I've had in my life. I sat with a man who who had dementia. He was in his 50s. It was early onset. I think it was Louis Bodies, which really expresses itself in this chaos, this behavior, sleep patterns, those things. And so uh, at the end of the week, he seemed like he was dying, Hospice people, we, we have these terms, uh, so transitioning and actively dying, right? So he was actively dying. He had all the physical manifestations of someone whose body was, you know, all the switches were getting checked off. And so on Friday, I thought, I went and saw him and his wife and all those things. And, uh, and I thought, well, this is the last time I, I'm going to see him, right? Because I don't come in until Monday. Well, I came in on Monday. His name wasn't on the list. And I'm, I, something's got to be going on. Called the facility. Sure enough, he, he hadn't died his daughter was there. And so I thought, well, I got to go over there and see what's going on. And he, when I walked into that room, he was working hard. I mean, he, he was moving through something. His daughter's there. And so I just started engaging a daughter and, and saying, tell me about your dad. And at the time I walked in, his, his heart rate was pretty elevated, right? He, he's, his heart's beating like a rabbit, pretty, pretty fast, but he, he's not really there. And as I asked questions about the daughter and the daughter talked about her dad he just slowed down. You could see his body just slow down. And at one point I said, your dad seems like he would have done anything for you. And she said he would. And that was it. He died right at that moment. It was so lovely. And it was, you could tell he was waiting to hear from her. You did a good job. Wow. And that, that, I love that because you were talking earlier about the legacy that that we all want to know that, and especially as we come towards the end, that we're going to make a difference. And so that sounds like he, that was how he knew. Yeah, very much. He heard his legacy, and that's all he needed to hear. And I'm also thinking that that is a way that, that those of us who might be uncomfortable uh, talking about death with our loved ones who are facing it is to, to just think of those impacts, uh, maybe big, maybe small, and just 
share them perhaps? Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, know. I mean, when you, you think about it, whether a person is uh, conscious or not, right, because at different states of someone's um, decline, they could be present or not. So even if they're present or not present, to say to someone, uh, dad or mom, when you did this when I was a kid, I really felt loved. I really felt cared for. I remember when we went on that trip and you took care of us and you you know those types of things boy those those are those are meaningful those those tell people again the legacy piece of it they tell them i i, I did something right right i and i really am hearing this in kind of a new way um because it's not just about preparing ourselves to sit down with someone we love who's dying and having to talk about that when that is so painful for ourselves but to to think about those happy things or those important things is, is, at least in my mind, it seems a little easier to prepare to see someone and say, wow, you're so important to me because of. Yeah, I mean, the, the tendency is to think in the season of life where a person is dying that that's the entirety of their experience in life. And the reality is it's, it's, only, it's only a small little blip for them. So to remind them that, that there, there's, there's an arc there that is important and to talk about it and to speak about it in that way really puts things into perspective, I find, for most people. And the other thing I heard you say is that, that several times the folks that you were working with were not in a responsive mode. Yeah, you know, it, it really is. And I mean, I told a story uh, about a patient um, that, that I saw who, you know, was waiting for his daughter, but I can't tell you how many times I sat with two guys that were deep in dementia. And I took my guitar with me all the time. I play guitar. So I would go into the room and these guys were both flat on their back, non-responsive. I'd say hello when I walked into the room, nothing, right? And so I bring my guitar in and I start playing for the the one guy who's my patient who is spiritual. And so I'm playing spiritual songs that you'd recognize hymns and different things like that. And and he sat up and just a huff and he said, play Red River Valley. And at that moment, I had one of those out-of-body experiences. Like, did this guy just talk to me? His roommate sits up and, and says the same thing. He said, play Red River Valley. Oh, I'm getting tingles. In, in, in my brain, I'm like... I'm thinking the chords. I'm like, okay, that's a one, four, five. And so I just start playing it, play the chords two times through. They sang through it twice <gasps> and they flat on their back and that was it. So you think about the impact of, so that was something pretty particular playing music, but just by being present with someone, you can have that same, just by being in that space, right? I had a patient that was ALS, really far, Lou Gehrig's, right? Really deep in it, on a vent, all those things. I walked into the room before his wife, called his name, said hello, nothing. She didn't say anything, walked into the room. He came unglued in this bed, right? And I, I pointed to her and I said, are you paying attention? Your being present with him is something that's important. And that's for everyone, right? Those people that we love will always be important for us in a space, right? They bring that energy into a room. Well, it seems like you're you're giving us a pathway uh, to to be able to find some kind of way to be present. Yeah. Well, you know, again, m most people when they're uncomfortable, especially if someone is actually dying, actively dying, not be able to speak to you, they feel like they got to fill up the room with something, right? They got to talk. They got to speak. They got to say something. And sometimes, the simple act of being present with someone in that space touching them on an arm 
that is enough. You know, that it's amazing how much care someone could provide just by doing that. Well, in your spiritual conversations with people uh, who are terminal or very seriously ill, um, is there ever room to be lighthearted? Yes. Yes. I, I, I think I laughed more than anything else. And uh, when you were the, the chaplain, yeah, I, you know, there are so many funny things that people say and they do. They'll tell stories and um, I'm one to want to bring humor to it anyhow, not in a way to be sort of dismissive about what's going on, but it's a humor is a way of disarming someone to get them to a point that when then they'll talk about the things that are most important. And so there were a lot of conversations that had humor in it, uh, and I, I enjoyed that part of it, especially if I had a colleague with me, uh, you know, a social worker, a nurse. You know, we would kid and do different things like that, and that really allowed conversations to happen that needed to happen. Well, I, I think that's, again, a, a, a pathway for any of us. That yes. we don't. It doesn't have to be serious. No, it doesn't have to be serious all the time. But being present is... is Absolutely, yeah. being present. So this is... Repetitive, I'm sure, but um, can you sum up like three tips on how to talk to people in our lives about their terminal illness or maybe three things we shouldn't do? Don't try to answer all the questions. You know, I'll give you an example. As a chaplain, I will walk into a room on just random days. I would walk into a room and someone would say, do you think I'm going to hell? Okay, dig, like big gulp. <laughs> Thanks for the easy question, right? But um, that's not a question I, c- I, I can answer for them. And so usually I would turn it back at them and say, uh, what do you think it takes to get to heaven? Right? You're so focused on, on punishment and what's going on over here. So what, what do you think the alternative is? Or what, how do you, you know, and that just leads to a conversation. No, no you know, we like, to, we like to provide promises and guarantees and things like that and uh, with any sort of authenticity, I couldn't couldn't really do that, right? It's not that's not the question that needs to be answered. There was always something deeper, right? Do you think I'm going to hell? All, usually was um, there is this really dark, deep, horrible thing that I don't ever talk about, and I think that's going to be problematic, right? So then then we get to expose that, and so don't try to answer questions. Um, definitely, just always be present. Um, and then be aware of what you're bringing into the room, right? We, we, when we walk into a room, if we're not aware, uh, if we're not ready and prepared for that, for the work that's going to happen, we, we can actually impact what goes on there. And I wouldn't say a negative way, but it can hurt the opportunity for us to really do some good work. Yeah, I love that. That, that really does, uh, it does speak to my heart, and I'm sure it speaks to some listeners' hearts. Um, is there anything that you want those that are listening tonight to really remember to walk away with? Death is not something to be afraid of. The process of dying is, is it, it is one of, it is one of the most rewarding seasons of a life. If you're willing to sit in the midst of that. Uh, and I just, I just always encourage people just not to be scared of that. It's, it's an opportunity. It's a moment. And just like, you know, when you're, when your kids are little and they're infants, you, they're not there forever. And when someone is going through the process of dying, they're not there forever. And 
to to really not let that get in the way of, of being present for that particular season. I think that does it. That's a really powerful way to frame it. It might not be something that it might take a while to digest that. I oh, think. oh yeah, it's not it's not something you just walk into casually. Yeah, and so you know you left hospice to have your own church now. And what was what do you think? Uh, one of the biggest transitions was for you? Um, well, uh, quite honestly, one of the biggest transitions for me is I, re- I really missed meeting with people that I didn't know. Oh. You know, the repetitive work of parish work is absolutely incredible, but I'm really energized by meeting people that I don't know. So I missed that part. That was a hard part for me. To, and then and then working with all the lovely people at Hospice of the Foothills. They, you know, they were my friends. We did work together. And so I really, it took me a while to transition from that. Well, that, that is a powerful information that you've shared with us. And definitely I can see the positive impact that you have on the people in your life. And the, the, again, the, the folks that, are, that know you well, and then the folks that you just enter into their lives. And you've given us some great ideas today. And I'm uh, Lori Burkhart Frank. I've been talking to Reverend Brad Helmuth, the rector, pastor of a Holy Trinity Episcopal Church in Nevada City. And you can tune in to Embracing the Journey on the fourth Tuesday of each month at 6.30 p.m. I want to thank you, Jeff Wright, for our theme music. And thank you, Ralph Henson, for being our podcaster. And thank you, Brad, for being here. Thank you.